Crime Critics is a true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Jeffrey McDonald was a golden boy if there ever was one. He did well in school, he was the student council president, he was voted most popular and most likely to succeed. He was king of his senior prom, he went to college at Princeton, and he went on to medical school and became a thoracic surgeon. He was married with two little girls and a baby on the way, a boy. He had it all. Then, on a rainy winter night on the army base of Fort Bragg in North Carolina, he murdered his pregnant wife and his two young daughters. Or did he? Welcome to Crime Critics. I'm Sharon. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for joining us for our first episode. We will be covering a different true crime each week. And this week, it's the shocking case of Army Green Beret physician, Captain Jeffrey McDonald, who allegedly murdered his pregnant wife and two children, but is still maintaining his innocence 50 years later. If you haven't heard of this one before, it's a doozy. It's like he was Chris Watts before Chris Watts was Chris Watts. As we saw in our Facebook poll, some of you know who Jeffrey McDonald is, and others have no idea. But don't worry, we're going to tell you all about him. So here's how this works. We'll tell you all about the case, and then Sarah and I will each rate how well the cops did their jobs and how well the criminal... achieved his goals? I don't know. You get the idea. We all know that the cops are the good guys and the criminals are the bad guys, but the cops don't always get it right. And the bad guys are sometimes very good at being bad guys. And sometimes they're just idiots. So Sarah and I are each going to give the cops a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And same goes for the criminals because we're crime critics, right? Yes, we are. It's kind of like getting a performance review at work from complete strangers who only read about you on the internet. And you get to vote, too. So join our Crime Critics discussion page on Facebook. There's no requirements to join. We let everyone in. And the following week, we'll talk about how the polls turned out and declare a winner. I hope it's not Jeffrey McDonald. Wait, are we still recording? So Jeffrey McDonald was born on October 12, 1943 in Jamaica, Queens, New York. He was you know, great at school. He was a student council president. He was voted most popular and most likely to succeed. He was the king of his senior prom. I mean, you name it, this guy did it. Um, he later gets into Princeton. You know, he's... Uh, well, Sharon, don't forget, he was handsome. He was oh. a good looking guy back then. <sighs> Yeah, back then. <laughs> well, I, I think, no, yes. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> I, I know your type. If you, went, if you went to high school with him, you would have been. But I would have hated him because he was so arrogant, I think. Don't say it. <laughs> I think I tend to go for the arrogant ones. <laughs> I, I don't think he got, I, I think after college is when that part of him came out. 
Yeah, that may be true. So um, he first meets Colette Stevenson when he's in eighth grade. They date for a couple of years, but they break up like in 10th grade and they don't get back together until they're sophomores in college. They're at separate schools. They get back together. They're writing letters to each other. They visit each other. And guess what? Colette's pregnant. So Colette drops out of school, but Jeffrey McDonald does not. He gets to uh, finish his education. And um, a year later, they get married. And their older daughter, Kimberly, was born. Um, So blah, blah, blah. He graduates from college and they moved to Chicago. Um, McDonald, his wife, and his young daughter to, uh, so that he can go to Northwestern University Med School. And uh, a couple years later, Colette's pregnant again. Do they not know how this is happening? <laughs> um, <laughs> so Kristen's born uh, in 1967. So, um, I don't know, McDonald again graduates, he does his internship, and then in 1969, he joins the Army. He, you know, goes to basic training um, at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio. Shout out to San Antonio. Hey, Um, San Antonians. We love San Antonio. Sarah and I both used to live there. Um, Yes. And that's where we met. In San Antonio, not at Fort Sam Houston. (laughs) No. (laughs) We met in school. Yeah. So McDonald joined the Green Berets. And um, Sarah, we had a little bit of a debate about how many people know what Green Berets are. We did. We did the phone a friend. Yeah. Actually, (laughs) a few phone a friends. We did. We took an informal poll and... um, what were the results again? It was basically like... It was um, half and half. It was half and half. The two it boys knew it. We did three boys, one girl. The girl and one of the boys didn't know, but two other boys Right. Did. It was 50-50, basically. Yeah. And they were all younger, but that's who we wanted to know. Because I know everyone our age and probably like 30 on up knows what Green Berets are. But if you're younger than that, you might not. But anyway, so the Green Berets are, in case you don't know, kind of an uh, elite squadron in the army. And I don't know. They are, it's kind of a prestigious thing to belong to. It's a good point on your resume. Yeah, I'm sure it looks good. And apparently the uniform and the, the, the beret that they wear, although, you know, berets are not necessarily the most manly hat I can think of. Um, apparently <laughs> this is kind of a... A thing that is um, maybe looks good in uniform, I, I guess. I don't know. I'm not really into it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not yeah. either. I don't like yeah. that. No, I'm not into it. Um, so, <laughs> so then in 1969, they're at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Guess what? Colette's pregnant again. So this time she's pregnant with a son. Things are, you know, from the outside, looking in, going well. They're both happy, you know. Supposedly, they're both happy. Colette, you know, Jeffrey expecting his first son. Yes, and he buys his daughter a daughter's a pony that Christmas. He Colette writes a letter to one of her college friends and saying her life had never been so normal and happy, and so it seemed like everything was good. The baby was going to be born in July, 
And then well after midnight on February 17, 1970, things took a terrible turn. Yep. So I guess that night, um, McDonald spent some time with his daughters feeding their new pony and they had dinner and Colette had a night class. So she left. McDonald hung out with his kids and, you know, watched TV with one of his daughters, the older daughter, uh, put the little one in bed. Right. He Well, he played games with the little one before he put her to bed. I mean, just normal family night. Mm-hmm. And then um, Colette gets home and uh, they watch The Tonight Show. Colette goes to bed about halfway through. McDonald stays up and watches TV and I guess eventually falls asleep on the sofa. All right. And then at 3.42 in the morning, there's an emergency call placed by McDonald to, uh, I mean, he calls emergency. I think he gets the civilian police first, but they transfer him to Fort Bragg. Um, and he's making a 911 call based on the stabbing that's happened there. Right. So the dispatcher hears in a whisper, help, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, 544 Castle Drive. Stabbing. Hurry. So about 10 minutes later, the military police, they do show up, knock on the front door. There's no answer. So they decide to go to the back of the house and try the back door. And that was unlocked. So they enter the residence and they find Colette in the master bedroom at the back of the house. Colette was found on the floor of the master bedroom. Um, On her back, she was covered with, um, didn't he lay the pajama top on top of her? His, the pajama top that he had been wearing. Right. She, he had that, uh, he said he placed that over her body. You know, she was beaten. Both of her forearms were broken. Probably defensive wounds. I agree. So Colette's injuries were terrible. But let's say those are pretty serious defensive wounds. If your if your arms forearms are, are broken, um, the one of the murder weapons was a a big piece of wood that was about two and a half feet long, about thirty one inches. So it's a big piece of wood. But and that wood, you can imagine that breaking your forearms. But um, that's a right. Her having thing. her hands up to defend herself, somebody swinging that piece of lumber at her. Yeah, that's pretty pretty serious stuff. So Colette was stabbed 21 times in her chest with an ice pick, 16 times in her neck and chest with a knife. Her trachea was severed in two places. And then that pajama top on top of her. Mm-hmm. And a knife on the floor next to her because uh, it's later testified, I think McDonald says, that he took the, the knife was, was still in Colette's body and he took it out and tossed it on the floor next to her. Right. So that's there. That's laying there. And McDonald is laying there kind of on Colette's chest, her shoulder, that kind of like laying there with her, um, with his arm kind of draped over her around her neck. And um, that's how the police find them. And Colette is deceased, but McDonald is still alive. Right. So when the police get there, they go to McDonald. He tells them, go and check on my kids. 
So the police do. They find five-year-old Kimberly in her bed. She was also stabbed in the neck with a large knife. Her skull was fractured from at least two blows. They hit her on the right side of her head. Her facial injuries were so severe that her cheekbone protruded from her skin. Yeah, that's tough to, that's even tough to think about. And I, I read too that she was stabbed like something like eight to 10 times. Um, I think some of these wounds were hard to differentiate from each other because they might have run together. I don't know. And also this was 1970. Forensics were not then what they are now. But um, these are some pretty severe injuries to a five-year-old little girl. Well, the two-year-old daughter, her injuries were, I, in my opinion, worse than what Kimberly got. So, Well, Kristen, the two-year-old, was found in bed with her baby bottle right there in bed next to her. So sad. That's a tough image to get out of your head. It's a tough one. Um, Yeah, Kristen was stabbed 33 times in her chest, neck, hands, and back um, with a knife and 15 times with an ice pick. So, I mean, that's a lot of times. 33 plus 15, I mean, 48 different blows. Right, and two of those knife injuries penetrated her heart. Yeah, and her hands had wounds. So... Even though she's just a little tiny thing, I mean, she's fighting back against an adult and she's she's fighting for her life. I mean, she's trying to protect herself. She's putting her hands up and and she's stabbed in the back. I mean, was she was she turning away? I mean, this poor poor little little girl. I mean, it just it's it breaks your heart to think about what she yeah, went through that night. It's So let's yeah, let's move on. That's tough. The police also found on McDonald's headboard the word pig was written in blood. And it turned out later that it was actually written in Colette's blood. Um, I mean, Manson, anyone? That that really, that's what that brings to mind for me. And I, I don't know how it couldn't for almost anyone, really. Right, Sarah? I mean, yes. This had happened. I mean, the Manson murders, the Tate LaBianca murders had happened, what, like, I don't know, six to eight months before this? They actually happened August 8th and 9th of 1969. And I remember that. I will always remember that. My birthday. So, wow, that's not a great thing to have happen on your birthday. It's not, (laughs) but I do honestly think of Sharon Tate on my birthday. And Sharon Tate, she was so beautiful. She was an actress. She was... um, Married to Roman Polanski at the time. Um, Roman Polanski was a very famous director then. I mean, still, is, I don't know if he's dead or not, honestly. No, is I don't think dead? so. I don't, think, I don't so. think he's dead, but didn't he? Uh, bad things. Roman Polanski yes. did bad things later. Um, and I think he ended up having to live in France and not in the United States in order to not get prosecuted. But that is an entirely different podcast and probably not even one that we would cover um, no, I, I would not cover the things that Roman Polanski was accused of doing. Yeah, I don't want to get into that either. So anyway, but 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 Sharon Tate was, a, you know, she was beautiful and she was well-known. And I mean, it, she was pregnant. I mean, it was just... And think about it. There's another correlation we haven't necessarily discussed, Sarah, is that's another correlation between these murders and the Manson murders is Sharon Tate was pregnant and so was Colette, 
Colette McDonald. Mm-hmm. They were both pregnant when they got murdered. So that's another correlation that really fits here with this being either, either no one ever, no one ever seems to have really believed that it was, you know, an actual other Manson murder, which this was clear across the country, right? That happened in California and these, these murders happened in North Carolina, but maybe a copycat murder or an attempt to make it look like a copycat murder, you know, because they actually obviously believe that McDonald um, committed these this crime against his wife and children. So, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. And the thing is, these these letters in in blood, they were eight inches high. I mean, these were not small letters. These were, think about it, six months earlier. I mean, this is is very fresh in the minds of people, this Manson murder. And it was terrifying, I think, at the time, you know. I mean, I, I think people were very, very scared. Yeah, it was all and over Manson, the And Manson, frankly, Manson is terrifying to this day. And I think he's been executed. Has he been No, executed? no, he, no. He died in prison. Oh. Died in prison. Well, he's dead, at least. <laughs> but well, um, he's still terrifying to this day. And he's dead. So think about how terrifying that is when he's still alive and this just happened. Jeffrey McDonald was taken out of the home on a stretcher. And as they're wheeling him to the ambulance, he starts shouting, let me see my kids. So he was very emotional, very, I want to see my kids, as any parent would. I think he acted appropriately at that point. I mean, very much like a victim. So I don't think there's anything suspicious about that. I think that um, he is very much acting like any parent would. Let me see my kids. Mm -hmm. Let me see my kids. That well, is exactly what every parent would be thinking. Don't take me away from here. Let me see my kids. So I think that that is, that makes sense. You it know, does that, to that me fits. too. It absolutely fits. The problem is that McDonald only suffered cuts, bruises, and fingernail scratches to his face and chest, and none of his wounds were life-threatening, and he didn't get any stitches from any of his wounds. Right, and then scratches to his face and chest. What does that tell you? That bothers me because I, <laughs> I mean, you know, does it bother you, Sarah? Be honest. Does it bother you? Well, a it bit? does. It does because you hear of other victims scratching their attackers to get away, to stop the attack. If he is the victim, how is his face and chest getting scratched up? I mean, and he's attacked by three men, um, according to him. And maybe their fingernails were long or a little bit grown out. Doesn't necessarily mean they're taking care of their fingernails, but these are men. So are they really scratching his face and chest as they are attacking him? Mm-hmm. He says they're attacking him with like this big uh, stick, this like two and a half foot long piece of wood. It just makes me feel more like, well, I think maybe you got those because Colette, a woman with fingernails that are longer, you know, than normally men would have. Um, and I can't prove this. I don't know how long her fingernails were, but it seems like maybe she was, you know, grasping out of you to try to get you to stop. That Those seem more like the wounds that a perpetrator would get rather than wounds that a victim would get, especially a male victim being attacked by a male perpetrator right well let's go into 
little bit of a detail on his injuries. He suffered a mild con- a concussion, a single stab wound between his ribs, causing a partial lung to collapse. Right. So he had a partial lung collapse. I read that it was 20%. So 20%, that seems pretty small um, compared to 100%. But I mean, if it happened to me, would I want to get medical treatment? Of course I would. But compared to the fact that his wife and his two daughters bled out in that house because of the injuries that they had, a lung that is 20% collapsed does not sound to me like anything comparable to what happened to his family. And so comparatively, it feels like this is such a minor injury. Um, But I'm not a doctor and neither are you. Not. So we we don't really know i mean it sounds minor but i guess it could be more more serious than it sounds like but it it just feels like this doesn't even compare to what happened to his family right mhm and the staff surgeon also wrote that his wounds were clean small and sharp measuring about 5/8 of an inch in depth 5/8 of an inch I mean, that almost to me, it's a little more than like a hesitation wound, but it definitely seems like, I don't know, it's just a very um, shallow wound, but I don't want to stab myself that deep, so I'm not going to, I mean, we really can't criticize because the truth is that would really hurt. And so... Yes, I, I, I don't disagree with that. that would hurt. There's no way to for us, I think as lay people to judge it, but it does seem that the investigators from the army really seem to look at these, these wounds as definitely being able to be self-inflicted and that they were not serious enough to, um, certainly they were, they deemed them not life-threatening. And so they seem to be of the opinion that they were self-inflicted. Right. The other weird thing though, that Sarah, that I have a problem with or not a problem with, but it's so odd. He was in the hospital for nine days. Right, nine days for... It was 1970, right? So, like, today, <laughs> I said this before to you, I was like, you know, you could have heart surgery in this, these days and be out of the hospital in less than nine days. But, and I don't know if that's true. Again, I'm not a doctor. But um, it just seems like that's such a long, long, long time to be in the hospital when you don't have any life-threatening wounds, right? I mean, they're basically calling these almost scratches, right? Right, and and, and like we said before, the wounds did not require stitches. They weren't that severe. Right, so maybe the nine days is protective custody. They're trying to protect him because in the beginning, they they truly do believe they at least seem to at least treat him as a victim. Um, They later, and not, not very much later, but they do seem to change their their opinion and think that he is the perpetrator. However, in the beginning, they think he's the victim. And so maybe they're trying to protect him because he had seen these people. So if they learned from like the newspaper or the media or whatever that he's still alive, they might come back and try to kill him so that they he can't testify against them. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that he would be in protective custody. But nine days in the hospital certainly makes it sound like his injuries were much more severe than what we see in any of the reports that we've read. All right. So let's talk about his story, what he told the police 
that happened that night. What did he say, Sarah? Well, he had said that his younger, youngest daughter wet his side of the bed. So he just carried her to her own bed, but not wanting to wake up Colette to change the sheets, he just, you know, I'll just go sleep on the sofa. But later he wakes up because he heard Colette scream, Jeff, Jeff, help. Why are they doing this to me? So then he gets up off the sofa, but was attacked by the three males. He's trying to, right? He's starting to get up mm-hmm. off the sofa. And before he can really get completely even sat in a upright position, he's attacked. He's attacked. And he claims that one of his attack his attackers were wearing surgical gloves. Okay, that's weird. I think that's weird. What's the coin like what's the chance and what are the chances of coincidence that this guy is wearing surgical gloves when he attacks a surgeon in 1970. I don't think that you could just drive to a Walgreens in 1970 and pick up a box of surgical gloves the way you can now. And I mean, I've, I've picked up surgical gloves at Wal- or Walgreens for, I mean, five years at least, right? For like cleaning or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But thanks um, to COVID, we are now... Thanks to COVID, they're very readily available right now. But even five years ago, they were easy to get. You could go into Walgreens, pick up a pack, and walk out the door. But in 1970, to have surgical gloves on a person, I don't don't know. I mean, I would expect them to be wearing something more like garden gloves or um, warm weather gloves. Something but not necessarily surgical gloves. So I think that's a weird coincidence. It doesn't mean anything. But it's a weird coincidence that kind of just sticks in my mind and makes me wonder. There was a fourth intruder, Sharon. That was the female. There was. Yes, absolutely. So McDonald described her as having long blonde hair or possibly wearing a wig, knee-high boots, a white floppy hat. You know those 1970s floppy hats? I mean, huge to where it was covering her face. And she was chanting while she didn't touch him. He said she did not touch him, but she was chanting while the others attacked him, right? Right. She was chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Again, Manson. And ironically, of course, you know, not ironically, pig is written on the headboard of their bed. She's chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. It all fits together, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see the story that's being, being woven here. Is it a story that was woven by a bunch of people on LSD, as, you know, McDonald is claiming? Or is it a story woven by a guy who read an article in Esquire magazine? All right. Well, as the male intruders are clubbing and stabbing McDonald, that's the female intruder is shouting, hit him again. So during that attack, McDonald's pajama top was pulled over his head to his wrist. So he used that to block the ice pick. So like the pajama top though, it like, he said it, he didn't know if it came over his head or like ripped from the back, but basically it got caught up like in the arms around his wrist. So it's not, it's almost off him, but it's not quite. So he ends up using it as like a shield, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Putting it up, trying to block that ice pick from coming at him. Right. And who wouldn't? That makes sense, right? But it's 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 not a great shield, but gosh, I mean, you use what you got, right? You do. 
you do. So, um, he was eventually overcome by the intruders and knocked unconscious. But he did regain consciousness, and by that time, the intruders had already gone. They, they left. He checked on his family. He found them unresponsive. He tried to administer um, CPR and other you know, life-saving measures. They were clearly gone. Um, he talks about having been you know, in denial that they were dead, but that as a doctor, he, he knew. That's from um, the Fatal Vision book. Very good book, um, by the way. <laughs> very good book. Um, Audible has it, just in case you want to check it out. It's very long, very good. Then he apparently ends up back in the bedroom, um, the master bedroom with Colette, and that's where he collapses, and that's where the military police find them when uh, when they respond to the 911 call. And when the police get there, both phones in the house, the kitchen and the bedroom, are still off the hook. This is because even though it was a single call to 911, uh, McDonald put down the phone in one room and ends up picking it up in the other. Yeah. So a search begins for these suspects that McDonald has described. The problem is that, number one, they only search until 6 Mm a.m. That's when they called off the search. They were searching cars on on base. But the other thing that I read is um, that there were no gates, um, locked gates, guarded gates at Fort Bragg at the time. Um, I think all of us know, and if you've driven past a military base of any kind, I mean, they're guarded. They have the little arm that comes down. There are military guys in uniform guarding the gate. You can see the guns that they have. They're openly displayed. You have to show ID to get in. Um, None of that existed at Fort Bragg uh, in 1970, February 1970. It just didn't exist. These were open roadways that, I mean, you could tell... I imagine that you were going on to a base, but you could just go on and you didn't have to show any ID. No one was there to check anything. So they could drive on easily and they could drive off easily. And Fort Bragg is a really big base and has more than a couple exits. I've, I've heard something like they have like maybe up to eight exits and entrances, but I don't know. Um, but even if there's two, there's ways off that base and... There was no one guarding those, and they never set up roadblocks. No. So those people could have escaped. There could have been intruders. They could have escaped, and no one would have been the wiser. Right. So when they did call off the search, like you said, around 6 a.m., you know, by that time it's daylight, or, you know, it's sun's coming up. They decide, you know, to search around the home, and they do find by the back door an old hickory kitchen knife an ice pick, and that piece of wood that you've been talking about. And inside that, or attached to that piece of wood, were two blue thread fibers with blood. Now, I don't know if we've talked very much about this, these fibers that are shedding all over this this residence, Sarah. No, we have not yet. We have not gotten into that. So this pajama top, right? Yeah. This pajama top that he's wearing, it's torn at some point. But there seem to be all these fibers that are traced back to this pajama top all over this residence, you know, in the children's rooms, uh, in the master bedroom, but curiously not in the living room 
where McDonald says he was attacked and where the pajama top supposedly was initially torn. Right. So, um, of course, all the weapons were wiped clean of any fingerprints. So McDonald's like, of I've course they were. Yeah. McDonald's like, I've never seen those before. I don't know. I don't know where they came from. But it turned out that this wooden, the wooden stick, this two and a half foot long wooden piece of wood had paint on it that matched um, some furniture in Kimberly's bedroom. They had painted some furniture, a bookcase or part of a bed frame or something. They had painted something and there was paint on it that matched. Mm-hmm. So it clearly came from the home. But McDonald said, yeah, I had a wood pile. I had some wood outside. I don't know. Maybe it could have come from there. But he said he didn't recognize it. Never seen it. Right. And also, let's talk about inside the home. McDonald claims that the attack on him began in the living room. So the only thing that was kind of a miss in the living room was the coffee table being turned over, flower pot on the floor, Pretty much that's it. Yeah, so let's be clear about this. Apparently, in the living room of the McDonald home, there was a coffee table that had some magazines on it and a flower pot. Um, after the crime occurs, what the investigators find is that the magazines are laying on the floor. The coffee table is turned 90 degrees. It's just tipped over. Not 180 degrees, but just 90 degrees tipped over, laying on top of those magazines. And when the investigators get there, that flower pot is standing straight up on the floor. It's later determined that the ambulance driver found it, um, the this potted plant. It was on its side, and he stood it upright. Mm-hmm. But um, it was on the floor. But I think the, the problem here is you start to see this, this pattern of people moving evidence before photographs are taken of this crime scene. Before a complete investigation could start. They're already contaminating the scene. And while we're here, Sarah, let's just mention the fact that the ambulance driver actually stole Jeffrey McDonald's wallet from the home. That That is just crazy. That is crazy to even try to think about why would an ambulance driver steal a wallet? It it just shows you how poorly this crime scene was guarded, how poorly it was um, maintained. Um, there was just there was no one paying attention to what was happening in those first moments after this call was made and after investigators arrived and EMS arrived. I mean, yeah, there it was a mis- it was a huge mistake. And huge. when something like that, when you're when a wallet of a victim can be a supposed victim at least, could be stolen. It's hard to say what other evidence might have been tampered with or, I mean, intentionally or not. It might have been tampered with. It might have been just walked over, moved, changed, stolen. You just don't know. Right. So uh, back to the evidence. There was a piece of fiber that was found under Kristen's fingernail. And then a single fragment of skin that was found under Collette's fingernail. But guess what, Sharon? Um, I'm going to guess they lost the evidence. They lost the evidence. That is just unbelievable. Yeah. They lost it. They lost it. It's gone. Gone. So also, there were splinters of wood that were found in all three of the bedrooms, all which had bloodstains, but not in the living room where McDonald said that he was attacked. And that's the problem, because it's not only just these splinters of wood that were not found, you know, like they're supposedly beating him with this piece of wood, um, just like they did 
Kimberly and supposedly the others. I mean, Colette's forearms were broken. So you can imagine that if this is one of the weapons, that that would be something that could break her forearms. But there's splinters of wood in all these other rooms of the house, but not in the living room. You know, so there's this absence of, of any blood of any substance, any amount in the living room. There's this absence of uh, splinters of wood from this weapon in the living room. And yet this is where Jeffrey McDonald says that the majority of the attack that happened on him against him, that's where it occurred. Mm -hmm. And there's just no evidence of it, Sarah. But here's another thing that I find a little bit strange because this is Jeffrey McDonald's home. He lives here. His fingerprints should be all over the place. The phone that he did use to call for help had no fingerprints or blood. And supposedly he called for help after the attacks. Why would it be wiped clean? Yeah, I have nothing. But moving on to the bedroom. This was a landline. Let's remember that. This was a landline. So it's either up against the wall, like hung on the wall with a, you know, a handset and a receiver. Um, I don't know if those are the correct terms. But anyway, um, it's either hung on the wall or it's set on like a, a the nightstand or it's hung in the kitchen and on the counter. But um, this is a landline where you have to pick up the receiver. But just think about your own cell phone. There are fingerprints all over it. You use it all the time. I mean, just even if you're just thinking about answering the phone, there's there's fingerprints all over it. And there were no fingerprints on that phone and no blood. Right. And I think that's important. No blood. He should have at least had specks of blood on his hands, you know, after visiting his children, visiting Colette. Of course, you know, he's full of blood. Well, he said, and he says he's trying to save them. And I mean, if he's trying to perform mouth to mouth on them or CPR um, to get them breathing again, I mean, he's a physician. Um, doesn't mean he doesn't panic in this situation because who would not panic? Everyone, I think, in this position would panic. But he still should have gotten blood on him. And um, there's no blood on the phone and no fingerprints at all. All right. So. Back in the bedroom, they did find a tip of a surgical glove. That was found underneath the headboard, right where the word pig was written in blood. So Yeah, that's weird. That's as if someone put on a glove so that they could do it, you know, like spell out pig so that there would be no fingerprints left in the blood. Right. And the the glove that they found happened to be the same type of surgical gloves that McDonald had in his kitchen. You know, now that might not be so strange since right, we're all exactly. walking with glove boxes of gloves in our cars you know and not everyone is but you know it's but in 1970 how common was that i mean but again i guess the other thing is in 1970 the forensics were not that good so if they say it was the same type of glove was it you know did they examine you know the latex that the glove was made of i mean are they positive it was the exact same type of glove I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. I don't think we can answer that. Well, maybe not now, but I mean, if this case happened today, we would definitely, I mean, the experts would be, I think, examining the oh. latex, find out if it was the exact same composition as the gloves in his residence. Absolutely. 
But do you know something that's really strange, and I find this hard to believe, but, you know, it, it, yeah, ha- it happens. But it's true. But it's true. All four members of the McDonald family had different blood types. Yeah, that is so astronomically kind of like improbable. And yet, and I just say a layperson's opinion, not a not a doctor. Um, but uh, that's going to be like our new thing, Sarah. Like, not a doctor. Not a doctor. Um, so I don't know that it's really that astronomically improbable, but it seems improbable that these four biologically related members of this family would each have a different blood type. There are only four blood types, and each of them had a different blood type. That's amazing. That is. That, that that makes it, but you know, that made it easier for the forensic team to determine the path and the movements of the family that night because of the blood. It's actually amazing because this was well before DNA. I mean, this is 20, 25 years before DNA was going to be used in a court of law. And this allowed them to trace the movements, like you said, of these people throughout this crime scene, you know, as it happened. And so... It's amazing because they can they can trace where each of the children was, where Colette was, and where Jeffrey McDonald was throughout this scene, where they bled. Exactly. McDonald's movements contradicted what the blood evidence told them, what the blood splatter said. So something that is, is just strange. How did Kimberly's blood wind up on the pajama top that McDonald was wearing that night because he remember he had said that was that was on Colette. He had taken it off. He didn't have it when he walked into Kimberly's bedroom. He said in his own words that before he went to Kimberly's bedroom to attend to her to check on her that he was no longer wearing that pajama top. So why is Kimberly's blood on that pajama top? I mean, theoretically it shouldn't be, right? You're absolutely right. And then also Kimberly's blood was found kind of at the door frame of the master bedroom. Right in the entranceway, right? Right in the entranceway. That her blood was found there. And then so police are thinking, okay, she was initially attacked in the master bedroom, then carried to her bedroom. Because remember, I don't know if we actually said this, but um the theory of the army investigators was that this started out as a uh, an argument between McDonald and Colette that their voices were raised or, you know, there was a ruckus and that Kimberly being five years old, that she got up out of bed, she heard it, she got up out of bed and she went to find out what was going on and that either maybe she was hit accidentally or who knows, but that, that she was first struck in that master bedroom. And that's why her blood is there in the doorway that maybe she was, she was peeking in. I mean, can you, you can imagine it. Yeah. A five-year-old just standing at the door, wondering what is going on with her parents, trying to figure it out, but being, you know, timid and, and scared. You can, I think you can totally picture it. It's, it's actually a chilling, chilling thought. It, it is. It is poor. The, what Kimberly must have been thinking that night is just crazy. And what she saw before anything happened to her, whatever it was, whatever it was, she saw something terrible before this happened. It really, the evidence seems to, to show that. About April 6th, that this is when they finally bring McDonald in for an interrogation. They start, you know, questioning him on what happened that night. 
And remember, this this murder happened February 17th, so April 6th? I mean, we're talking what? I mean, it's a month, month and a half plus a week, so six, seven weeks, seven weeks later. All right, so they start interrogating him, and they ask him to take a polygraph test. And, he, you know, he, he agrees to it. He says, okay. But 10 minutes later, you know, 10 minutes after the interrogation is done, he's out of the, you know, police station. He calls them, and what does he say? Uh, he changes his mind and he says he no longer wants to take a polygraph mm-hmm. test. So, you know, that was, that was a quick, uh, <laughs> that was a quick 10 minutes for the investigators. And it may have been more than 10 minutes, but basically, like at the end of his interrogation, they ask him and he says yes, he agrees, walks out of the building very shortly later with, you know, that same day. He calls back and he says, nope, not going to do it anymore. All so right. we don't know if he contacted an attorney in that time frame. We're not sure why he changed his mind, but he definitely changed his mind. And he was relieved of all of his duties. He was placed under restriction for, you know. Yeah, later that day, they they were done. They put him under, not under arrest, but like they were, um, they had officers um, stationed outside of his, out of his, you know, like he was in single officer's quarters. So there's uh, military personnel outside making sure that he doesn't leave without them knowing. I mean, he's not arrested yet, but he is under basically house arrest. Yeah. Keeping a close eye on what he's doing. And his mother then, I mean, they, they appoint him an attorney, but his mother gets advice that she really should hire a civilian attorney, someone not in the military. And so she does. She, uh, she hires Bernard Siegel. He's a well-known attorney. He's known for his advocacy for the poor and his work in, work in the civil rights movement. Um, so kind of an odd match because he often actually um, represented people who were um, hippies or in the drug scene. And in this case, he's representing the kind of straight-laced doctor, army, captain, Jeffrey McDonald, right? Um, so it's a really different kind of case for him to take. On July 6th of 1970, that's when the initial Article 32 hearing began, and it lasted until September. So the whole hearing was overseen by a Colonel Warren Rock. And and by the way, at the end when he issues his report, it's called the Rock Report. <laughs> So if you ever, like, research this case at all, the Rock Report, it was written by um, Colonel Rock. Yeah. Warren Rock. Well, Colonel Rock decides to th- not throw this case out, but dismiss it. Because... Yeah, he dismisses the charges. He says, you know, there's all kinds of things wrong with this. I can't figure out that there's really any any need to, to hold this over. I mean, he says... Uh, The evidence was trampled over, right, Sarah? Yeah, the evidence was trampled over. The CID investigation was clumsy. Criminal Investigation Division, by the way. I think that's what that stands for. Yes. But he also noted that they lost evidence, Mm -hmm. like that single thread found under one of the girl's fingernails, uh, McDonald's pajama bottoms that were torn and discarded at the hospital by one of the orderlies. You know, those were gone. They could never find those again. The trash at the house was um, originally thrown out because um, 
I read that they originally viewed this as a, a domestic violence incident. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know what they were walking into. They just knew there was a stabbing and they needed to get there. But the trash was allowed to be um, discarded, the trash from the home. I mean, that piece of skin underneath Colette's fingernails, that was lost. I mean, there was just all these things that happened. And um, he decided, oh, there was also Kenneth Micah. Sarah, we didn't even talk about him. I was just um, getting to Micah. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy. He's the, the military officer, the policeman, that said that he was on the way to respond to this scene at Jeffrey McDonald's house. Um, and he saw a, a blonde woman with a wide-brimmed hat standing on the street corner about a half a mile away from the McDonald home. And remember, it was raining. It was the middle of the night. It was 3.45 in the morning. It's raining, and she's standing out there in civilian clothes, and he thinks it's unusual. And he testifies that if it had, if he had not been on his way to an emergency call, he would have stopped and, and spoken to her and, and tried to find out, what are you doing here? You know, do you have... Is there something wrong? Do you, you know, what is your purpose? But he was on his way to respond to this scene. And so he didn't stop, but he, he testifies that he saw someone matching that same description that McDonald gave of a, one of the intruders. He saw her on his way to the scene. So the police believe that Helena Stokely was the blonde female. They do. They do. That's who they think it is. And they also believe that maybe one of the three males were her boy was her boyfriend. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but I just want to put this out there. The um, Helena Stokely at the time was seventeen years old, but she was well known by the police. She was, and she was known to be uh, involved in the drug culture, and she was perceived as a hippie, and also a police informant. And she, right, and she did not live at home with her parents. She lived with roommates. Her boyfriend's name was Greg Mitchell. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So police already had somebody in mind for the suspect, for the female suspect. It was Helena. So at the Article 32 hearing, McDonald's testimony, he testified for three days. Yeah, he did. Three days. And... His story changes a little during his testimony. Instead of his initial statement of, I found Colette on the floor sprawled. Um, he now says that she was a bit propped up against a chair before he sort of laid her flat on the floor. And maybe as a doctor, he laid her flat so that he could do CPR. Um, because even as a doctor, I, th I think that when you see someone that you absolutely are in love with that injured and, and that, you know, that degree of horror, I don't think that anyone is prepared for that. So I think it's possible that, you know, maybe he wasn't thinking about what he did. He just kind of like his body started moving, you know, just try to do what you can to help her. So it, it's very possible that he... He didn't recall that in the beginning and later he did. But the problem is he changed his story. And <laughs> I think all of our listeners know that once you start changing your story, you're in trouble. That's mm -hmm. why he never talked to police. Um, Always say, I want an attorney, regardless <laughs> of how big or small your case is. That's the that's a difficult thing is right. If if they've got you on your sights and you start to change your story at all, 
it's it's definitely trouble. It doesn't mean you'll be arrested, obviously, but it definitely sparks suspicion greater than what they already had. And so I think that's kind of what starts to happen here is, you know, he's changing his story and they think they've got him because he's he's changing details. But well, not only that, during the testimony, they start throwing out his infidelity. They do. Yeah. And I, I think he was unfaithful. I think that I, I think he's admitted to that. He was unfaithful. Um, the, the question is, how many times was he unfaithful? Because he admitted to twice, but there seemed to be a lot more instances that he does not admit to. All right. So that's just all speculation. But he does admit to on two separate occasions. He was unfaithful to Colette, but claims she didn't know anything about it. She was in the dark. And maybe she didn't, you know? I mean, maybe she was really happy. Maybe he was good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. And regardless, it kind of doesn't matter because being unfaithful doesn't make him a murderer. No, it doesn't. So on October the 13th of 1970, this is when Colonel Rock formally dismisses the charges on McDonald. You know, that's the Rock report. <laughs> that's the Rock report. He dismisses it for insufficient evidence. So... McDonald at this point thinks, I'm free. I'm done. I'm done. I I can move on with my life. And he does. He does. He moves to New York. You know, he's honorably discharged. Right. Honorably discharged. Right. So, But then he moves quickly to Long Beach, California. He's an, he gets a job as an emergency room physician. He's an instructor at a medical school. And he becomes medical director at uh, a hospital. So, um, you know, basically he's doing well. He's got a job. He's got a condo in Huntington Beach. I mean, life is going good. He's dating. He's he's dating. He's got a girlfriend. I mean, yeah, I don't know how, I mean, he's got money. He's got a job. I mean, he's a doctor. He's, He's doing well for himself and things seem to be really getting back on track for him. Right. So he starts to you know, out in California, he receives a lot of emotional and public support. You know, he's writing letters to magazines, newspapers. He's wanting to publicize this. He's wanting people to hear him, be on his side. Yeah, he's really definitely ta- acting like he is, you know, innocent. And um, he wants people to uh, to understand that about him. So at this point... Jeffrey McDonald has been honorably discharged from the army. He's, quote, vindicated, right? He's vindicated. And he's a little bit, I don't know, Sarah, I would say cocky about it. I agree with you. I I agree with, he sounds like, I got this. I'm... I I got this. I'm I'm moving on with my life. I'm going to start dating younger women, and I'm going to buy this condo out in Huntington Beach, and I'm going to live my good life. (laughs) And so the thing is, public opinion and his former in-laws, his former in-laws, Colette's parents, her mother and her stepfather, um, the stepfather, you know, she was really, really close to, um, they're all still supporting him. And um, they all loved him. They, they absolutely love him. And um, I heard a story, I read a story um, that at the end of the Article 32 hearing when uh, her stepfather, Freddie Kassab, was uh, done testifying. He turned back towards the judge after he was dismissed as a witness. And he said, can I say one more thing, judge? And the judge said, yes, you can. And he said, 
some this is a paraphrase but he said if i had another daughter i would still want my son-in-law to be jeffrey mcdonald i remember that i, I did read that he, as well he just loved him and trusted him and believed in him so much that even if he had another daughter he would want her to marry jeffrey mcdonald i mean that to me is such a powerful statement from an in-law right yeah yeah it's amazing it, it, it just proves how much they loved him and how much they believed that he had nothing to do with this. Yeah, they absolutely believed it to their core. The thing is, Colette's mother and her stepfather are about to turn on McDonald, and they're not the only ones. Next time on Crime Critics. So Sarah, as we've discovered throughout the process of recording this first episode, the Jeffrey McDonald case has a lot of twists and turns. More than we can get to in a single episode and still do it justice. So we're going to go ahead and press pause here with Dr. Jeffrey McDonald living the high life out in California. And we're going to go ahead and give our ratings now based on this first leg of his legal journey. Next week, we'll cover what happens after Colette's parents turn on him. So Sarah, how would you rate the cops based on the Army investigation only? We're just going to stop there, right? We're going to going to talk about just that portion that we've we've discussed already. So, how do you rate the job that the cops did? Well, thumbs down. It was terrible. <laughs> you know, from losing evidence, trampling over the crime scene, they did a horrible job. You know, they were not detailed. They didn't treat it as a crime scene. And I kind of alluded to that too. Like I think, and I read that I think that they, when they first got the call, they kind of felt like this was a domestic violence issue. And certainly domestic violence didn't get the attention. It wasn't treated the way it is today. But I did read that they, they thought this was a domestic dispute. They did not think this was like an intruder situation because, you know, McDonald didn't, didn't say that. And that's not his fault. He was, you know, if he's the victim here, he's, he's panicked. He doesn't say all the things, you know, I wouldn't either in a, that kind of a situation. No, he wants the cops there now. He needs help. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I think that they didn't know what they were coming, you know, to, to witness or to, to, to investigate. So they weren't really thinking of it as a crime. And so, yeah, they made a ton of mistakes. I mean, just so many things got discarded or lost or trampled over. And there were so many people in the, the crime scene initially. And then the photographs didn't get taken right away. And things had been moved. And then they tried to recreate it. You know, they used to do this. Um, and right. I, I did. I, I forgot to mention that. When the medical examiner or the, I'm sorry, the pathologist had the bodies of the children, they did not take any fingerprints. No, I think of the children, that, but um, I think well, maybe we didn't. We've discussed no. this case so much. I know. Um, it's up. but yeah, I mean, those kids were buried without ever having their fingerprints taken, so they couldn't rule those fingerprints out. I mean, yes, they would be smaller, but they couldn't rule them out as not being intruders because they just didn't have them to compare against. And so there's just all these mistakes that were made and. There's just nothing you can't you can't go back and fix it. Once the crime scene has been contaminated, it's you're done. You know, yeah. you know you got to do do with what you have, which at this point is not a lot. And that seems to be kind of where the army kind of came to their conclusion. You know, is 
there's a lot of stuff that's missing, trampled, contaminated, whatever. And they were just like, we can't say that, you know, we, we, we can't go forward with a, with a prosecution. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened. They dismissed the charges. They honorably discharged him because they just could not go any further with what they had. Well, I, with the way you're talking, I think you agree with the thumbs down. I agree with the thumbs down. Thumbs down for the cops in this case. Okay. So let's talk about McDonald. Okay. So how do you rate him? So for the purposes of this vote, let's assume that the jury got it right. Okay. Let's assume that Jeffrey McDonald is guilty. Um, and I only say that because a jury found him guilty. He does still profess his innocence. He is still fighting for his innocence. He had an appeal of some sort in 2017. Um, so he is still proclaiming his innocence. But if the jury got it right and Jeffrey McDonald is guilty, um, how do I rate him as a criminal? I don't know. I mean, he got caught. So I'm going to say thumbs down. Thumbs down. Same. Yeah. Say there was just too much if he in fact did it he did leave a lot of evidence behind yeah he did and think about it, this is 1970 so there weren't all these cop shows that we get to watch now you know all these things where we kind of learn about how forensics are viewed and so he didn't know that he just you know maybe did what he could with I don't know with what he had <laughs> that's what I was going to say The thing is, if he's not guilty, though, Sarah, if the jury got it wrong and he truly isn't guilty, I mean, then this is absolutely a tragedy. I mean, it's a tragedy anyway, but it's a tragedy for for Jeffrey McDonald if he's innocent. I mean, this is... Yeah, spending 41 years in jail now? Yeah, I think he went to prison in 1979. And so um, we're kind of... Spoiler alert. um, You know, we're going to talk more about this next week um, in part two, but... Yeah, I mean, if he's innocent, he's been in in prison for a long time for something he didn't do. And at this point, you know, we we can't know. You and I can't know. I know he's still appealing and that kind of thing. But, yeah, it's a tough situation. I don't even know. Well, thank everybody for tuning in and listening to Sharon and I. We do hope that you join us next Sunday, January 17th, for episode two. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember, this is our first episode, so please be kind. Crime Critics is written and created by Sharon Newman Edwards and Sarah Jones. All opinions and mistakes in this episode are ours alone. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and join our podcast discussion group on Facebook to vote, discuss the cases, and tell us what cases you want to hear about in the future. All music was provided by Purple Planet Music at purple-planet.com. Our logo was created by Rachel Moore. Our sources for this episode are detailed in the show notes. Join us next Sunday, January 17th, for part two of the Jeffrey McDonald case on Crime Critics. We've cast our votes... Now don't forget to go cash yours.
he gets him a pony. And um, they named it Trooper. Trooper. So, beautiful name. Very cute. I don't know if it's beautiful, but it's <laughs> Uh, it's it's cute. He he may have uh, regretted that later. That may have been like a harbinger of things to come. Hey, that's ironic, by the way, because he's a surgeon and one of his one of his attackers is wearing surgical gloves. Yeah, I mean, what are the odds? And who wears surgical gloves? I mean, I guess I guess that makes sense, but it's weird. I don't think they sold them like in boxes at the local Walgreens back in the nineteenth. In 1970s, like now, <laughs> hello, COVID. 